Hello, season's greetings. Welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod. I am Ali Maxwell, he's George Ellick, and this podcast is sponsored by Betfair, who we thank hugely for their continued support of the Not The Top 20 pod, allowing us to cover the EFL twice weekly, as best we can. Uh, George, it was a heavily reduced EFL slate over the weekend, and you were in at Quest. I'm intrigued to know, because... We both know how busy it is, and I'm sure the listener can appreciate how busy it is when you've got 36 games to talk about. What's it like when there's only 16? A bit quieter, I must say. I, I kind of went into it. Normally, you the, the stress of making sure you're not going to miss any amazing goals or any big moments. You know, the, the last thing you want is to be sitting in the studio watching the highlights um, as the people at home are watching them and suddenly you see something that you didn't know had ever happened, uh, such as, you know, a, a red card that shouldn't have been a red or something like that. So it was a bit easier to stay on top of things. Um, it was, I had a, a lovely day with, with Colin Murray and the the fantastic Joby McEnough. Mm. Um, Alec and McEnough, brilliant duo. Interestingly, we had a, um, we had kind of family Christmas yesterday because I'm not with my family for Christmas. Um, and both my sister-in-law and my mum um, both tuned in on Friday night and both said how much they enjoyed Joby. Now, I don't know if they're talking about his analysis mm-hmm. or about the fact that he is a fine-looking human specimen. I've got a feeling it might be the latter. Could be either. Uh, he's the all-round package, isn't he? Both are true. And brilliant footballer as well, of course he was. Um, I mean, it, it feels like we're filling time because we haven't got as much as we normally have to talk about. But I think with my teams of the season so far for each league, we'll still wring plenty of juice out of the weekend slate. And all and, of my issues with it as well. Yeah. It could last a long time. <laughs> EFL discourse. <laughs> we, we we probably won't be shortchanging you this week, uh, that's for sure. I did spend a lot of my Sunday afternoon researching this using Scout, Opta Analyst, WhoScored.com. So I'll be pretty upset if there's uh, if there's too much kickback. But then again, why do we do this? For engagement, we want to know what you guys think. So listen along while we talk through the weekend action and drop in a team of the season so far for each league as we go. George, in the championship, there's something I'm really excited about. Now, I think it's been established that we are quite passionate about the EFL, that it doesn't take a lot for us to get excited about players, teams, matches, uh, whatever it is. But in the championship, particularly at the moment, there's something I'm really excited about. And the best way of me explaining it to you is by looking at the last six form table, last six matches at the top, Blackburn. Second, QPR, 13 points from six. Blackburn on 16 points from their last six. Then Nottingham Forest, 12 points from six. Hull, Sheffield United, Middlesbrough, 11 points from six. Notable by their absence, Fulham, Bournemouth and West Brom. None of them are there. And that makes me head into the second half of the season with real excitement, George, because we have got a group of teams who are performing really, really well. For how long? We don't know. But they are genuine, genuine good teams for the level. And I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, me too. Um, I am I am as well. You know, that, that seeded batch is is really cooking nicely in the in the oven. <laughs> don't cook a loaf of bread, though, do you, mate? You bake it. Mm. I, I had cheese on toast for lunch. So did I. Cheese and bagel. That's weird. And tomato soup. Mine was very good. You need to add something. I, I was frustrated. I thought I had some Liam Perrins, but I didn't. So it was just quite plain. No chutney. Oh, we had some chutney, but I didn't. I didn't even think, mate. An oversight. Let's move on. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it is um, exciting. I, I definitely agree. I mean, Bournemouth's current run 
um, has them down in 23rd in that in that uh, form table with just three points from their last six. We're recording this at quarter past one, sorry, quarter to two, sorry, on on Monday. So a few hours to go until hopefully the game at Craven Cottage this evening all being well. So Fulham's form isn't really worth getting into too much detail for because for all we know, they're going to go and blitz Sheffield United tonight 3-0 and then any early obits are going to look pretty silly and similarly they could get get well beat and then suddenly we're going to really be wondering if they are slipping away uh, at the top end of the table. I think it's pretty unlikely. I think, as I've said before, the, the two teams who I still believe are the class teams in the league seem to be having their their rough spells at the same time. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk about Bournemouth in a second and their defeat to Middlesbrough. Um and again, it's kind of the same old story where there was enough in that performance and that display where if that game is played 10, 15 times, Bournemouth are going to win their fair share. Um, so it, it's 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 a difficult run of form. They've got to try and maintain a certain performance level. They've got to try and make sure that they stop squandering chances. But definitely in terms of a, of a competition, um, it is looking a lot more competitive now than it did uh, a few weeks ago. Let's start with that Blackburn Rovers side who are now one point behind Bournemouth they're one point ahead of West Brom, who drew on Friday night 0-0 with Barnsley. Rovers now on a 1.83 points per game number that would be good for an 84-point season. They would have finished last season if they'd had 84 points, just behind Brentford, of course, who finished third. So that's the level they're at in terms of points per game. And, George, they absolutely thrashed a Birmingham side that simply did not match them at Ewood Park this weekend. It was, similarly to the last few weeks, exciting, high-tempo, and a brilliant atmosphere at Ewood Park. Yeah, they battered them. Just a, a total and utter dismantling of, of Birmingham. Um, Blackburn were, were by far the better team. The the golfing quality between Blackburn and Birmingham um, is the type that we've seen previously this season when it's been Bournemouth and Fulham at their best. Uh, the switch to a, a three at the back seems to have you know, provided a, a massive improvement from, from Blackburn. Um, from earlier on in the season when they weren't too poor anyway, but they now look pretty much untouchable. Um, teams don't really get near them. Uh, Van Hecker and Kadra, the two loanees from Brighton, have made such a big impact. Um, you know, I've said consistently this season how much worse this Blackburn squad on paper is compared to last season as well. As Van Hecker and Kadra continue to improve, suddenly you know, two loan signings that looked four or six weeks ago like they weren't particularly important ones now look like two of the class players in the division, one at the back, one up front. And that helps. Uh, Lewis Travis being back in form and fitness is a massive plus. Pickering is really starting to to find his groove and, and the new system suits him much better than than, than the, the the back four previously. This was this was so easy. You know, Ben Brereton isn't gonna get an easier brace, as I said on Quest. Um and you know Sarkic played his role in the in the Birmingham goal uh, in terms of of just some really poor play, bringing, bringing down Brereton um, for the first, some pretty rash decision-making from him as well. Um, but having said that, they were just, um, they were just so much better. And, and Brereton, Brereton nearly getting, Brereton Diaz, I should say, nearly getting his hat-trick with a Cantona-esque chip that just kissed the top of the bar and went over. Um, every player at Blackburn is playing incredibly well. Um, this is, you know, this is a, a proper run of form and a proper team now. The, the key is going to be Jan, where, now, we've seen Tony Mowbray come out in recent weeks and talk about the contract situations with Joe Rothwell, with Daryl Lenehan, with Ryan Nyambe. Now, he seems pretty frustrated that the owners aren't you know, carrying out his will and giving these players new contracts. That is a bit of a concern with the Britain situation where if you've got owners who are not tying down their assets that the manager wants to be tied down, what's the chances of, of, of him 
of them rejecting a, a, a bid for Brayton Diaz. Um, they do when seem they can to have cash a, in on I an think, asset now. I think they've got an, a year option for Diaz, so he's not out of contract in the summer, I believe. I mean, he he technically is, but Mowbray's talked about them having Brayton Diaz. Yeah, yeah, it's eighteen months. Yeah, okay. I think. Rothwell, yeah, I believe, is out of contract in the summer. I think Nyambe the same. And and Lennon, I think, is the same as Brayton Diaz. It's all the case. But you've got a question the relationship there between the owners and trying to ensure that the good form on the pitch is maintained. Because if Tony Mowbray is there saying we've got two players out of contract in the summer and they haven't been given any deal yet, then when that bid inevitably does come in from Brighton or from Leeds or whoever for, for Britain Diaz, and they're sitting in a position where they are within touching distance of returning back to the Premier League, well, if he hasn't done the easier thing of, of handing new players contracts, then what are the chances of him turning down 20 million quid for, for a key player? So one of the reasons why there's an, an added layer of, of delicacy, I think, here, and I, I, I never really thought I'd go to bat for the Venkies, and I'm not sure I'm necessarily doing that, but what I will do is is repeat some reports of the financial results that came out just before the weekend. Um, Blackburn's controlling company, Venkies London, lost £21 million in the year that ended 31st of March 2021. Uh, the year before that, which ended uh, 2020, it was 20.8. So they've lost £41.8 million uh, through owning, running Blackburn Rovers uh, over the last two years. Their, their wage bill in 2021, again, this is not this season. Uh, last season, it got up to... Uh, paying the equivalent of £201 for every £100 of income. Now, these are eye-watering numbers. They are concerning numbers. Now, the, the Adam Armstrong sale and and what we assume was quite a significant wage slash in the summer, a lot of senior players departing, that will be important, of course, in mitigating some of the losses from that year uh, in, in, for example, this tax year and the next one, etc. Uh, and the accounts don't include the £16.6 million generated from the sale of the training ground to a company set up by Venkis, which again is a bit of smart accounting that will, that will help offset some of those losses for financial uh, fair play purposes. So the next set of accounts in a year's time uh, will have the £16.6 million generated from the sale of the training ground on them. And then the 2023 or the, the, the accounts for the year to June 2022, which will be published in 2023, that will have the sale of Adam Armstrong on them. So at the very least, the next two years have a good chunk of income on top of what they would have had over the last two years. But I did I did note these numbers with some concern. It, it's not a surprise that Blackburn Rovers lose a lot of money because most championship teams do. But it makes the situation, it just adds that delicacy, doesn't it? Because, you know, I know that giving players new contracts is not the same as spending large transfer transfer fees in terms of outlay. Um, and and the, I guess it's a sort of, a bit of a game of chicken as well because you and I would say, well, if you lock down these assets, then you're due a bigger fee when you do sell them on. Um, it's just... I can imagine from an accountant's point of view, kind of still wanting to, to try and go down the cost-cutting route where possible when you're at the point where you're losing quite so much money at the moment. So it's, look, it's not as sexy talking about off-field stuff as it, in, on, on, as it is on-field stuff, but uh, that was just something I noticed uh, last week, which I thought was worth flagging up. But your points all stand. I uh, just loved how many different moments of quality there were uh, in this Rovers performance. You know, John Buckley scoring, I think it was his first goal of the season, and it was a tap-in from a Sarkic parry. He even makes the tap-ins look classy, though, which I enjoyed. There was a, a big switch 
from Van Hecker out to Nyambe in the build-up to that goal, which was just perfect. Uh, a great through ball from Lenehan to Kadra for his goal. Lenehan playing as a, an, an outside centre-back, probably getting forward, probably tasked with progressing the ball much more than he, he's ever really done before and seems to be thriving in that role, as well as bringing so much uh, leadership quality as well. And the extra composure from Kadra after he'd gone round Sarkic to sit poor George Friend down. I wouldn't wish what happened to George Friend on anyone. It was a true embarrassment. <laughs> it's, it's only second to a really embarrassing nutmeg, I think, uh, and rolled it in. And then there's Diaz, who you mentioned being quite quiet in general and scoring two goals to take him to 19 from 22 games. It's it's pretty sensational stuff. Um, so much focus on Diaz and Buckley that I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned Pickering and Rothwell and Lenahan as well and those loanees because I think because of Diaz and Buckley, there's a, a risk that they go a bit under the radar. But as you say, everyone is playing well. That is very, very cool. Blackburn Rovers going incredibly well, as are Nottingham Forest. Uh, they went 1-0 down to Hull, George, right at the end of the first half from a Lewis Potter goal, brilliantly taken. Uh, but it struck me how, A, how well they seemed to be playing before that goal and B, how well they responded to uh, a bit of a sort of punch out of nowhere, punch on the nose out of nowhere to, to come back and, and win this game, albeit with a little bit of help from the referee. A little bit of help? Well, the penalty I mean, wasn't a penalty, but as you said on Quest, they had a pretty good shout for one with some uh, shirt tugging not long before. Yeah, I mean, as you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And um, if I was certainly the first decision, you know, the, the Malik Wilkes tug on, on Yates looked a penalty. Um, but that doesn't in any way defend or justify the giving of a penalty for what was a brilliant tackle and a great block from George Honeyman. And that is where the game here really um, swung because Hull were good value for their lead early on. They were probably the better team in the, in the first half. Keen Lewis Potter showing his absolute class with a brilliant run, amazing first touch. And then, um, I mean, I love the finish. It was quite a weird finish. You don't often see that where a player just basically smashes it in from kind of seven yards um, at the near post. I assume, I think Bree Samba thought he was likely to square it to Malik Wilkes, who, who kind of had a tap in. Hadley just rolled it a couple of yards. Um, but yeah, as you say, the the game swung on, on a penalty decision. Um, and, you know, as we said, to the Forest fans who, are gonna, who aren't going to like this very much, yes, they should have had a penalty. So they would argue that being one all there is, is understandable. But um, it was an awful decision. And, you know, it's one of those proper annoying ones where George Honeyman has been punished for what was a, a, a brilliant piece of, of defensive action. Which saw him um, get absolutely fact, booted on the ankle as well. Well, yeah, and, and also I, I think the fact that Alex Mighton was hurt in the um, in, in the clash as well probably didn't help Honeyman's cause, and it's going to hurt. You know, kicking somebody really hard on the ankle when you when you think you're about to kick a football probably is quite painful. Um, and then and then you know Brennan Johnson with a uh, a lovely take, not a great finish to be honest. He he, he isn't a great finisher. Um, you know, for all the praise that, that he gets, which is right because he's, he's a brilliant player. And, and, you know, Joby said on the show on Saturday, he's destined for the Premier League. I, I completely agree. He absolutely is feasibly even this January. Um, although their current form means I'm sure Steve Cooper will be doing everything possible to ensure that he doesn't um, get sold in Jan. But he should score more. You know, he's not a great finisher. Even the goal itself was, was pretty close to Baxter. Um, you know, that's, in, in my view, Nathan Baxter's poorest game. So far, uh, as Hull keeper, he, he probably will feel like he could have done better. Um, but a brilliant assist from from Lewis Graben. You know, this is Lewis Graben back at his his real best there, peeling out wide, um, beating a man on the outside and putting in a delicious ball for Johnson to chest down and then roll into the net. So, I mean, all credit to Forrest. They are 
um, in a in, in a really good place. And under Steve Cooper, the whole club feels galvanised, kind of similar, I guess, to that to that Sabri Lamucci season, where it feels like the whole club is is pulling together for the first time in a long time. I do think the performances are probably better than they were under, under Lamucci. I think this is a, a genuinely very good side playing well. But you've got to feel for Hull, who came here in great form, who'd have fancied their chances of, getting, of taking something, who probably on the balance of play deserves something. Um, there wasn't much to choose between the two sides. So for Hull, you know, the, the good run might be over, but I'm not too concerned about them. I think they have got enough quality now and, and enough players playing well um, putting in the right direction too, as well as Nottingham Forest, that so they should be okay. Certainly the the highlights edit that I saw made it look like Forest had been fairly dominant until Hull's goal. Maybe that wasn't necessarily the case, but there was some, some great football being played. One particular um, a bit of combination between Johnson and Spence, uh, which Johnson rolled just past to the far post. Um, Forrest playing some really good stuff. And, you know, I spoke last week about the, the underlying numbers not being as good as the results, uh, which happens all the time. It happens both ways. Sometimes the underlying numbers are uh, are great and teams aren't getting the results. So, you know, when you're looking at small sample sizes, that does happen. But the one I didn't say, which which is something that we should sometimes say, is, you know, that the increased confidence that comes from being on a good run of results can impact the the underlying numbers and improve performances. It's not, mm. you know, performance sure. level changes. It fluctuates, uh, as as any fan knows. And uh, I think we saw like the 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 amount that they're enjoying their football and the, and the the looseness of their attacking play, which just hasn't been there for the last few years for Forest. I also love the way that they can flip formations in game. We saw this uh, because of Osei Tutu's injury in the first half. He was playing left wing back in a 3-4-3 three, three, uh, with Ryan Yates playing uh, at the heart of a back three, which is a role in which he's been thriving, which is great fun. Osei Tutu gets injured, so Cooper, quick as a flash, brings on Mighton, the winger for him, drops Cole back from centre midfield to left back, where he's pretty comfortable, pushes Yates from centre back into centre midfield and bang you've got a 4-2-3-1 you've just made one sub and and uh and you know you can move forward with that so you know I, I say I like it at the same time Hull's goal which came not long after that probably doesn't happen if they're if they're in that 3-4-3 shape because Worrell would have been the the right-sided centre-back and you'd have thought he'd have been across to cover Lewis Potter's run uh a little easier than than he was in the back four uh Spence with the misjudgment at right back which meant Lewis Potter could control it over his head uh, and finish brilliantly as you say but I, I just like that, you know, that extra layer of tactical flexibility. It's not the most important thing about Nottingham Forest. It's not it's not something alone that's going to win them tens of points this season, but it's something that can have a big impact in tight games. And, you know, in the championship at the moment, almost every game seems fairly tight. So Cooper being able to flip things up, his players understanding how to change in-game and implement new styles and shapes, uh, that's only a good thing. And it's another feather in his cap early on in this impressive Forest tenure. Uh, Fred Tavern uh, on Twitter. What a name, by the way. He has some Forest stats. One of them looks very good on Steve Cooper. Since Steve Cooper took charge, Forest have won three of their six league games that they've trailed at half time. One more than they did in their previous 94 occasions wow. when they trailed at half time, uh, where they only won two of their previous 94 when they were behind at half time. They've won three of their last six. I just enjoyed the the atmosphere, a packed city ground. It, it hammered home uh, how special it is to go to football matches on a weekend where uh, so many and so many listening to this pod were, were not able to go to their game because it was cancelled. Um, the Forest fans made a hell of a racket and it was uh, it was great to see. George, that Borough-Bournemouth game, 1-0. 
to Borough. Uh, the early kickoff on Saturday. It's a difficult game to analyse, as you say, because Bournemouth. You, you know, you you almost you you want to be well. You get led down the doom and gloom path because of their form. Um, but you're rallying against that, and and you'd like to flag up the fact that they did miss some great chances in the first half. Yeah, you know me. You know me too well. You know exactly what I'm going to say. Um, yeah, in the first half, Boris started better. Um, you know, they they came out the traps very quickly and, and looked to attack Bournemouth where possible. But it was a, a, a very much a case of the um, Bournemouth going into the game in the first half. And by the end of the first half, it felt like Bournemouth were well on top. They missed three very good chances. One, you know, the Jaden Anthony chance he kind of did okay with and just shot wide. It wasn't really a miss as such as just um, not quite finding the corner. Um, but for Dominic Solanke to miss that header from, from at the back post is very surprising. I was so angry myself, so angry with myself for saying he'd score that nine times out of ten. I literally wanted to, if that was a pre-record, I'd have said, no, stop, start again. You're becoming it's the, worst. the man you no. never wanted to be, a proper football Shut man. Shut up. He has to score. Anyway, What's the XG oh, on that header, George? So probably, annoyed. Probably 0. 0.3. 0.24. 0.24. <laughs> Anyway, I'm livid. I hate it. The amount of people who I don't know who'd have seen me say that and thought, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Ah! Anyway, um, I mean, he should have scored nine times out of ten. He puts <laughs> that in the back of the net. And then, and then, I mean, the one that's closer to a, to a 90% expected goal was uh, was um, was Ryan Christie. And, you know, it, I, I, something is up where, where his, he's just in one of those spells where he cannot get the ball into the back of the net. And you can see that when he's getting these chances now, it's in his head. That he he's not confident in front of goal. He's kind of snatching at shots, leaning back on shots. As I said on the show, 34 shots so far this season for Ryan Christie, nearly amounting to an expected goal value of four. Yeah, he's still yet to score for Bournemouth. It's going to come, but that again was a miss, which has ended up costing them points because the way the game was going, I thought that they if they'd taken the lead at that point. Um, they'd have been in a very, very good position. But as it was, the, the second half was very much all Borough. And Borough, after taking the lead to a penalty from Spora, um, they would look the side who were more likely to get get a second goal um, and maybe even a third. Um, Ono Hernandez thought he had got a second goal, took off his shirt. Okay, goal was chalked off for offside and then he was booked, which was lovely. <laughs> Comedy moment, moment of the weekend right there for sure. Yeah, and I enjoyed how he, he he's known as being a bit of a character anyway from his Norwich days and he really wanted to take it quite seriously. But even he thought it was quite funny. You could see him sort of a wry smile. Um, and, and that is why, you know, on the balance of play, they absolutely deserve to win the game. No denying that at all. But um, from a Bournemouth fan's point of view, Whilst that is true, it doesn't quite tell the whole story. Where you know, on a different day, um, those one of the, just one of those chances goes in early on, um, and you'd fancy them to be in, a, in the position to to try and end this poor run. Um, I still don't think the performances are too much to worry about. I still think they're going to be okay, but they need to find that win asap. <laughs> Imagine how much you would love Isaiah Benjamin Montel Jones if you were a Middlesbrough fan. The right wing back who you picked up with no fanfare from non-league, who was on loan last season up in Scotland, uh, Queen of the South, who you might have kept track of him. You probably wouldn't have. You probably had nothing to suggest that he would be getting minutes in Borough's first team in the Championship anytime soon. He's now, well, he looks really exciting. I'm, I'm loath to go too big on him because it's early days. He's playing right wing back. You know, he's sort of naturally, we think, a winger. It might be that there might be some moments where he gets a bit bit exposed defensively, but Jesus, he's playing so well. And he was so exciting in this game. You know, it started with 
an incredible piece of, of pace and across to Matt Crooks, which Crooks um, fired straight at the goalkeeper. It was a good chance and, a, you know, would have been a great assist. Then, obviously, a, a great pass to Sporar at one point as well, which Sporar then, did he flash wide? or he, Again, did, was was a shot saved at the keeper? I can't remember. But those were two moments of creativity. And then there were multiple moments of speed and ball carrying. You know, it was terrifying for the Bournemouth left side, who themselves are normally the, the ones who expect to dominate um, general matchups because they're so good. Zamura, Anthony, Billing combining. But Jones was the one. He kind of took them all on on his own. And he did so well. Uh, I was so impressed. And uh, he's just he's just fun. Like, he's just great to watch. And, and uh, he's another on a long list of players that we are very, very fond of. Uh, Isaiah Jones, what a performance that was. Uh, other winners of the weekend, George Blackpool beat Peterborough 3-1. This was kind of a, a low-key big game, I think, for both sides. I mean, last week you went big after Posh's victory against Millwall. And therefore, this felt like a really big game for them. It was a chance for them to make up ground on a team who had, you know, lost a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, but in the end, it was the home side, Blackpool, that did the business. Yeah, it was. And it felt like a significant means for them to do so as well. Um, you know, because they went behind here, felt very happy for the the posh fans, uh, having made the long trip up, having, you know, their, their side with such a poor away record, um, getting to cheer Siriki Dembele, putting them ahead. Would have dared to dream, but after that, Blackpool, who were you know undergoing a pretty poor run of form, really showed their metal um, by coming back and, and getting back into the game and winning it pretty comfortably in the end, even though they did leave it late. Uh, Keshi Anderson getting the opener, and then Sonny Carey, who's really making a name for himself, I guess, off the bench here for Blackpool, coming off the bench, lovely, very assured finish considering it's his first goal in the league, um, and then Yates finishing it off. So you know they were good for Posh, just more concerns. You know they weren't particularly at it they didn't cause too many problems after scoring the early goal um and Blackpool were able to kind of exert their dominance on them they were, they were clearly the better side and there was a bit of a gap between the two the two sides as well so yeah big win for Blackpool um you know puts them back to where they want to be gets a crucial three points against a team who are struggling but for Posh you know it's hard to find much positive to say 11 points now between the two sides. It would have been five had Posh won this one. So uh, a very important result, you have to say. Uh, I can't uh, ignore the fact that Josh Bowler uh, played well in this one. He, he had a really good start to the season. His ball-carrying numbers uh, are sensational. The way that he uh, dribbles with the ball is, is brilliant. Um, maybe a bit more final product wanted. Uh, it's a case for, for most wingers at this level, I would suspect. Uh, but he was brilliant here. He got the assist for the second. And I'm I'm not sure if actually he would have been given the assist for Yates' goal, given that uh, it was a, mm. a rebound and he had two bites of the cherry. But to all intents and purposes, it was... Uh, oh, sorry, it was the first goal he set up for Anderson. Uh, and in my eyes, the third, albeit only given one assist here. But uh, dribbling numbers off the charts. He's someone who we'd like to see get a run of games. Also, always think of Drake's song, Controller, when I think of Josh <laughs> Bowler. I just... I, I, I'd like to write that. Why not? Uh, Bristol City 2, Huddersfield 3. How harsh would it be to say that two not very good teams at the moment here uh, playing against each other. Huddersfield with, again, given their poor runner form, a very important three points. I can't help but feel uh, fairly concerned still for Bristol City and uh, and, and their, well, their performances all season, really. How did this one well, go? That, that, that's what I find kind of surprising with this whole thing with, with Bristol City is that I, I find that their form consistently over 2021 has just been really poor and and yet they're still able to to kind of keep themselves 
at bay from from the drop zone. You know, I can't really remember their seven wins this season. Eight points above um, it. That's that's more than I would have guessed thirty yeah, seconds ago. Exactly. Um, you know that they, they are a team who seems to struggle a fair bit. I mean, this wasn't necessarily one of their poorer performances. I think they'll feel aggrieved at not getting at least a point from the game. Um, you know, Semenyo hit the woodwork, which we saw. Um, but having said that, there's just you know they're up against a side in Huddersfield who they'd expect to beat at home. That there isn't much to like from individual performances from certain players. Um, there is a reliance on on younger players, I guess. You know, Scott is is the apple of all Bristol City fans' eyes at the moment. I think they'd like to see him playing in a more advanced role. Masen goes in and out of the sides and, and isn't necessarily um, performing the best we've seen him. I saw Rob Atkinson came off after not playing particularly well after an hour or so um, for the change of shape. The only good thing you can say about Bristol City at the moment is that they are eight points clear of the drop zone because you've got to think unless there's something changes, they are going to be drifting towards um, that area. Good point. For, good, po- good point that you raised, though. I, I shouldn't gloss over the fact that you know these are significant minutes for development for Benarus, uh, the youngster. I think he's 18, is he? Yeah, playing mm-hmm. left wing back. He's played a few games recently. Scott, uh, 18, was 17 at the start of the season. Masengo, 20 in the heart of midfield. Uh, Semenyo. Uh, who's who's had a good few weeks, 21 as well. And, you know, I shouldn't gloss over the fact that it's it's not easy to get those players into first team football and get them significant minutes. So uh, I just wanted to, yeah, flag that up because I might have been a little bit harsh in my introduction to this game. <laughs> no, no, but I think it's fair. I mean, it's I, I probably find Bristol City that the probably the hardest team to. Um, to to kind of talk about because you don't want to be overly negative because they're you know they're okay and they are you can't really anticipate they'll be doing much more than this and you don't want to upset their fans and Nigel Pearson they've got a manager who probably has enough savvy about him to keep him you know in a in a um you know in an okay position but it's very hard to watch any Bristol City games and have and have much to be positive about you know there's there's very little there there, there is obviously individual players who are who are playing well um Sorry, who are sorry, individual players who who you anticipate should be playing well and who have good qualities to themselves, but if you know, it's it seems to be a bit of a coin toss because normally when I say that word, I get it wrong. Whenever they're going to play, toss. Where, it's a toin toss where um, you can't have any faith that they are going to put in a seven, eight out of ten performance and get a result. Statistical quirk: Huddersfield have missed their last five penalties. Not sure what the odds are on that happening, That's but uh, it's yeah. pretty peculiar. It was a hell of a save from Bentley, you have to say. So it's not all a case of of poor finishing. Danny Ward missing the penalty, then scoring a goal and getting an assist as some form of uh, retribution. Is that the right word? Probably not, but I'll, I'll march on. I don't want to talk about Huddersfield striker Danny Ward for long, George, because he's giving me a lot of trauma at the moment because he looks just like an Australian fast bowler. And it's really, it's really not, it's not my favourite thing right now. So <laughs> not what you want to see. <laughs> it's not no, what I want to see. Do you have anything to say about Barnsley nil, West Bromwich Albion nil from Friday Nacht? Um, not really. West Brom I mean, might be cursed, like genuinely might be somehow cursed in front of goal. The amount of chances that they're <sighs> not just missing, but missing by quite a long way as well. Yeah. Um, How do you improve? It was just. Lack of I just feel like I, I've seen I've seen that West Brom game so many times this season, <laughs> where you know they they don't really um, look particularly threatened themselves. You know, Barnsley had a couple of moments where they looked like they they could maybe spring them on the counter, but realistically, it never really felt like they were going to score. 
and Baggies, whilst being the better side, you know, the Carlin Grant chance was probably the best chance. It was the one chance they didn't squander. It was one of the best bits of defending we've seen all season from Michael Hellick that that um, made the difference. And, um, you know, except for that, you've got the Matt Clark header, where actually I think Williams did quite a good job getting there ahead of him and, and kind of putting him off. Uh, Hugo had a very good chance, probably when it's when it falls to your striker and you're thinking, oh, the one man we didn't want it want it to fall to, that's that's a bit of an issue in itself. I see that um the baggies have been linked to Marcus Force um this morning in the press, which would be interesting. You know, he's definitely someone who'd be more clinical in front of goal, whether or not he adds the physical side of things that Ishmael looks for in a striker, I'm not not entirely sure. So um it, it's hard to be overly positive about either side. I mean what I will say is I, I do think West Brom aren't far away, really, because um, you know they are the better team in basically every every game I see them play. They just, for whatever reason, can't seem to turn that into three points. A good point, you have to say, for Barnsley, given the balance of play, just the three shots for them uh, over the course of that game. I'm uh, a bit upset with Poya Asbagi because he had another sub to make here. He had big Bill Hondemark sitting on the bench and he did not call for him. Um, and I think that was a big mistake, personally. Bill Hondemark, sponsored by Not The Top 20 Podcast, of course. Do we know, is he all right with us calling him Bill? Have you uh, asked him? Do you know what? I haven't asked him, but I will. I will WhatsApp him later and see okay, what cool. he says. Just, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, take it for granted, really, do you? No, I don't take anything for granted, mate. Um, apart from my championship team of the first half of the season, which is the best team that could possibly have been picked, <laughs> uh, one rule was a maximum two players per club. So couldn't just fill it up with uh, Fulham players, for example, or Rotherham players in League One. I want you to tell me in the championship who can feel hard done by not to be in my team. So uh, I'll start in defence. Oh, I should say I'm playing uh, very a la mode. Uh, I'm playing a 3-5-2 because that's what most teams in the championship play. Uh, I've actually got a Barnsley player, surprisingly. They're, they are second bottom. They would be bottom if not for a points deduction for Derby. But I've got their goalkeeper, Bradley Collins, in nets. Um, again, uh, my goalkeeper analysis is not my strong point, I would say. It's very difficult to be quite on top, particularly, I think, of um, quite how good each goalkeeper is in terms of distribution. Um, but shot-stopping numbers uh, we have to hand now, thanks to the Opta Analyst site. Uh, and given the volume of shots on target Bradley Collins has faced this season. His shot-stopping numbers have been brilliant. He's been a net positive for Barnsley, uh, where most of their players, you probably couldn't say that based on their performances. So Co- Collins is in goal for me. Uh, you've got people like Travers and Sam Johnston at the opposite end of the shots faced section, sec- um, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, who are still doing very good jobs. But I'm like, you know, you're not being tested very much. Uh, my back five centre-backs, Harry Suter, who's obviously picked up a long-term injury now, so he won't be eligible for any actual end-of-season teams of the season, but I think his performances before his injury uh, merit a place in this back three. Jacob Greaves of Hull next to him. Um, I don't think Greaves' individual performances this season are being discussed as much as they should be. I think partly due to his team's poor start to the season and also partly due to there being a similarly gifted young player in Lewis Potter who gets the headlines more often because he scores the goals. But Greaves' composure, defensive instincts, quality on the ball, sensational for someone so young. He's in my back three with Lloyd Kelly of Bournemouth. I think we saw when he missed a few games just how much they missed him. Uh, He's a captain. Mm. Their defensive record was sensational, wasn't it, for for much of the start of the season. So Kelly's in there. And my wing-backs, left wing-back, 
between Ryan Giles and Connor Townsend of West Brom, I've gone with Ryan Giles, and that's only because his Amazon Prime delivery is uh, so, so good. And I, I think, again, because of the team he plays for not having had a very good start to the season in Cardiff, I think he probably gets overlooked a little bit here because when it comes to picking teams of the season, um, people tend to just start with the best teams and pick players from them. Uh, I'm, I'm railing against that. Ryan Giles is at left wing back for me, with all due respect to Connor Townsend. And right wing back, not a stacked position, I don't think, in the championship. I'd say this is a weak spot. I'd say there's quite a lot of guys on a sort of Eight out of ten seasons so far. A lot of good players, but not necessarily unbelievable seasons. Um, Sorba Thomas is going to get the nod, uh, although he's been slowing down a little bit recently just because uh, of how impressed I've been with his performances. But equally, it could be Isaiah Jones if he carries on this form. I want to shout out James Bree, Ryan Nyambe, Darbo of Coventry, Spence of uh, Forest, Ethan Laird of Swansea. Darnell Furlong of, of West Brom, even Yeardom of Reading. These are all good right-backs, right-sided defenders. I don't have a very strong opinion here. I've, I've gone for Sorba Thomas. So that's the back six. And now the exciting end of the pitch, uh, central midfield Jean-Michel Serri. Uh, haven't seen many players in his position who are as good as he is at this level, uh, barring perhaps Ruben Nevsh. Uh, and he is alongside John Swift. Bit of creative uh, freedom here because Swift has probably not really played in a nominal central midfield role this season, but he has got eight goals and nine assists, so he's slotting in there. In front of him in the 10 role is Morgan Gibbs-White. Uh, it was a big choice between him and Chris Willock of QPR. I've gone with Gibbs-White because I think he is just slightly more of a goal threat. He's got better um, creative numbers than Willock. Willock's having an amazing season. He's such a good player, a really intelligent player I'm going with the extra dynamism of, of Gibbs White here and up top pretty straightforward picks Alexander Mitrovic who's still scoring more than a goal a game and Ben Britton Diaz who has 19 and 22 so that's my championship team of the season Collins in goal a back three of Greaves Suter and Kelly uh, wing back Sorba Thomas and Ryan Giles midfield Jean-Michel Seri uh, John Swift Morgan Gibbs White and Britton Diaz and Mitro up front your thoughts I haven't got loads because it would be quite boring if I just kind of took it apart for too long. But I do think I think, think it'd be great been... content. Mm, okay, roast, I mean, I, I think me. you, I think, I think you are falling into the trap that many, you know, amateur commentators do in football of of some serious recency bias here, <laughs> where I, I feel very sorry for for Bournemouth in general. Um, and this is gonna. I'm gonna come on to a similar thing in in League One, where you know, Bournemouth have been terrible for the last few weeks. Well, I mean they've been poor, but they put in some of the best performances of, of any club um, in the Championship this season. And particularly, I think for Ryan Giles to be in at left wing back ahead of ahead of Jordan Zamura is incredibly unfair. Interesting that you would go with Zamura over Jaden Anthony because he was probably the one I feel most sorry about. And he when they played three at the back, it was Anthony who played left wing back because Zamura think, was out. Uh, I think the fact that Zamira has been out for basically the entire spell that Bournemouth have been bad is quite telling as well. Um, where his, you know, he has not even played a part in the drop-off in form at all. So I would argue he was the best left back in the league when he was when he was fit. Um, and I think Phil Billing would have a a shout, especially if you want to play this as an actual team. I think him, I think a, a centre midfield duo of of, of Seri and Swift, uh, <laughs> as delicious as that is, and it sounds great as well. It sounds like a I'm not. I mean, it's not an accountant. What is it? Serian Swift. It's like a like a florist. I think. I think it's a florist. Um, That's exactly it. And uh, whereas Billing and Seri is a bit is a bit different. 
Um, but anyway, I think he's you know he's been fantastic as well this season. So maybe just a couple of the Bournemouth lads who I feel a little bit sorry for. Um, you know that I am biased, but I also think that Rob Dickey would deserve a, a mention in terms of you know he his start to the season was so good that yes, he may not have been quite as good recently, but QPR's form hasn't dipped. He's still their key player in defence, and I would think that he would have a shout of getting into this side um, he, he was, ahead of um, one of the centre-backs. He was a victim of some Y-scout stats, very particularly his his aerial win percentage is really low, like quite worrying. Yeah, he, doesn't, he, he just stands off and then tries to, tries to do yeah. them on the ground. That's yeah. him. I just want, I probably um, wanted a little bit more. But yeah, no, fair enough. And then the one other would be, would be West Brom, where I know the West Brom have divided opinion this season but I, I do think they've done a lot of good things and they're defensively especially they are good and I think Carl Bartley could be another one who would say excuse me here um, this, I think this I is where I, and this is all fair but and it is weird that I don't have a West Brom player in here but we come back to a more of an existential question about teams of the season where like you're working from who, which teams are really good which of their players are really good and I'm just looking at the players really and the player performances so you're you're going like okay West Brom they're not really represented here they've got a good defensive record and I think Bartley's their best defender so he should go in which again is is well, not wrong that's I think yeah. that's how most people do it it's very specifically not how I approach this I wanted okay. to individually find the 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 best individuals basically that I but could. do you do you think when fit suitors had a had a better individual season than Bartley then then that is your that is your call nice okay let's talk uh, League One action. Uh, we'll start with uh, Cambridge nil, Rotherham one. Strikes me, George, because uh, this was the reverse of of the fixture that was played four weeks ago. It's twice now mm. that Cambridge have played well against Rotherham, disrupted Rotherham, and not allowed them to do what they've done so automatically and repeatedly to a lot of other League One teams. And they've lost both times, which I feel a bit bad about. Don't feel bad about the manner in which Rotherham won this one, though, because that goal was one of my favourite moments of the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I think it was significant when you've got Paul Warren coming out and saying in his interview that he was there during the second half thinking to himself, OK, I think a point could be a good result here. Um, that shows the the threat that Cambridge were posing to, um, to, to Rotherham. And, you know, it was a good game as well. It wasn't kind of a, a dour nil-nil. Cambridge offered a lot of threat going forwards. Um, Rotherham, as ever, looked pretty dangerous when they did. And it was Ogbené's run from inside, well, I mean, from basically his own box where he ran about 80 yards up the pitch before having the presence of mind and the composure just to lay the ball off rather than going for the ridiculous uh, solo goal. Um, and it was, and also I think it got forgotten in the goal was how good a finish it was from, from Dan Barlasser. Um, where he just strokes it into the bottom right-hand corner from outside the area. For a second, I thought maybe Ladapo had, had kind of got something on it because it kind of goes past him, he jumps him out of the way, but um, seemingly not, so I think he would have been offside. Just passed um, it in. It was so, so nice. Oh, it really, he's so It made me so make... Good. It made, every time I watch it, I make an involuntary noise that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want other, other people to hear, basically. So I have to watch that bar lasso finish uh, on my own because it's just too embarrassing otherwise. Ogbené is ridiculous, by the way. Like his, and This was probably the, the greatest distillation of his insane ball-carrying ability. Um, but the, the opta-analyst stats are incredible as well. Across the whole of the EFL, so not just for League One, where obviously he's the standout. If you look at average carry distance and average carry progress, and so basically how far on average a player carries the ball when they attempt to dribble, 
Ogbene is is at 12.2 meters of average carry progress. Um, the next best in the whole of the EFL is uh, Brennan Johnson, who's on 11.8, and Josh Bowler, 10.46. Those are the only guys in, in double-figure metres per carry. Um, but the volume, the the length that he carries it, and the fact that even though, inexplicably, he hasn't got an assist technically to his name this season, <laughs> he has the second-highest expected assist per 90 in League One uh, at 0.28 behind McGeady. That's why it's really important for us to rail against assists where possible you know uh you might look at the numbers and say well yeah he can dribble but he's got no end product that's that's just wrong that is mm. legitimately wrong he does have an end product he does find teammates uh generally after beating two defenders so there's more space for his teammates and they they need to improve on their finishing of, of his chances um uh having said that i think there is still eye test wise uh, a sense that he could improve even more on that final action, whether it's going for goal and adding a bit more of a goal threat himself or whether it's his crossing um, or his passing. If he does, then Jesus, he could go He could go high, mate, because he's got something that, that you, you can't teach and um, <laughs> something incredibly valuable. Speed, ball-carrying ability, um, you know, dropping of the shoulder, and he can play with his head up a bit more now. So really, really exciting stuff. And yeah, good win for Rotherham uh, in not their best performance. What happened at the CAS? Oxford 2, Wigan 3. Uh, it seemed like sort of no rules here, just unfettered excitement and goals and chances and shots. Um, yeah, it was, it was an entertaining game. I mean, coming into it, as often seems to be the case with Oxford at the moment. Um, it was um, team news that was very... No, no, I'm talking more about the, the, the team news. The Some more COVID cases in the camp. Um, Cameron Brannigan missing, Herbie Kane missing, a couple of injuries as well. A, a, a suspension to Jordan Thornley meant that Oxford were turning up here with a side with James Henry playing holding midfield. Now, that seemed ridiculous enough to Oxford fans before James Henry then pulled his calf muscle during the warm-up and suddenly Billy Bowden was called in which meant that for those counting Billy Bowden, Ryan Williams, Gavin White and Mark Sykes all lining up on the same pitch those are four wingers you've got yourself there four wingers Marcus McGuane and, and Matt Taylor with right back Sam Long playing left side of centre back um, it was um, a, a, a team cobbled together but as is often been the case this season for Oxford, the performance didn't really, didn't wasn't hit by it. They put in a brilliant performance. They were probably the better side at two 0 down, which might sound like it's um, coming from an Oxford fan a bit biased, but I think a lot of Wigan fans who I've heard talking about the game were very impressed with Oxford as well, and, and felt like when the game was uh, when Oxford got back to two all, that was kind of what what was deserved. Uh, only for James McLean with a brilliant goal to, to win it feels um, like he you know, scored he's... that exact goal about seven or eight times this season just dropping right. the hammer with that left peg spoiler alert this isn't the last time we're going to talk about james mclean in the next 10 minutes um oh. <laughs> okay but um but yeah i mean that it's 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 wigan it's what wigan do um you know i mentioned the shrewsbury game that i watched 10 days or so ago where shrewsbury were the, the better team and wigan scored very late in the game um to win it 2-1 um, they are a side who who are able to, you know, they don't create many opportunities. They're not a relentlessly attacking side, but wow, they're clinical when they do it. And when they do go forward, they tend to create good opportunities, not just um, snapshots as well, as well. So really frustrating um, to not get anything out of the game, um, but given the circumstances as well um, and the performance, a lot of reason to be happy for Oxford and for Wigan, just managing to keep up the pace at the moment at the top end of the table. 
25 points from 10 away games, 2.5 points per game away from home this season is an insane record. And while you wouldn't expect to carry that on for the next, what, 13 away games, uh, 67% XG ratio per Fox punter suggests that it's certainly not a fluke, that they are genuinely dominant in their away game. 67% XG ratio essentially means they have twice as many opportunities or twice the quality of opportunities than their opposition, which when you're travelling away from home is is something very special. And Liam Richardson should take a lot of credit for a lot of things, but that is uh, another string to his bow. Shrewsbury got a huge win here, George. 3-1 against Cheltenham. Uh, a couple of bits and bobs here. Udo, Daniel Udo, five goals in six. I think he had five in the whole of last season. Um, he's been getting into good areas, making good good movements, and more often than not finishing his chances in recent weeks, which is really exciting. He's been playing up front with 18-year-old Bloxham, who got a nice assist for the first goal and a very silly red card, which I think he will learn from, right? Uh, he <laughs> turned 18 last month. He's got 11 starts already in the league this season, which is massive for someone of his age. And, you know, it's great to see him getting that many minutes. And he looks like a real handful running the channels. Obviously, the sort of headline this season was a bicycle kick that he scored and then I suppose that straight red card, which will see him miss a few games. And you wonder if Cottrell, you know, how quickly he will get him back into the side or whether he might try and teach him a bit, a bit of a lesson. He'll certainly have learned an important lesson there. But um, Shrews are now two points above the relegation zone. And actually looking at their squad, particularly even the starting eleven from the weekend, it's it's really weak, I would say, for this level compared to the majority of teams in League One. There's not much depth to it either. And not a ton of quality. And, and it sounds like I'm being really rude. And I suppose there's a there's an extent to which I am. But it it kind of makes me recalibrate what I what I expect from them. And I and I suppose mm. it made me think today when I was looking at this, two points above the relegation zone. If that's where they finish, I will still see that as a job incredibly well done by Steve Cottrell, even if he raised expectations with his own performance uh, upon taking over from Sam Ricketts last season. You know, their back three this weekend was Pennington, who's been excellent. Luke Leahy and George Nurse. Now, Leahy and Nurse, I thought they're both left wing-backs. They're both playing in a back three. Got an 18-year-old, as mentioned, up top. Um, I, I just wanted to shout that out because I think I'd kind of, I probably hadn't quite appreciated that as much. They're very strong at home. They've got the seventh-best home XG ratio in League One. The problem is they got the second-worst away, away record in the whole uh, of League One. So they're an interesting one at the moment. Uh, either way, to win 3-1 with 10 men was, uh, was mightily impressive yeah it was um it was uh there's you know daniel ludo is a player who um is doing very impressive things at the moment you know i think we all thought that ryan bowman would be the source of goals um if shrewsbury were going to finally have someone who could who could score a few goals but ludo at the moment is proving their biggest goal threat um do you think you know somebody hot streak yeah or do you think he's just well, sort of reached I, I another looked... level I looked into him a fair bit ahead of Quest because I knew I was going to mention him and he was prolific, uh, you know, in non-league. So it's not like he is a, you know, his game when he's playing well is scoring goals, right? He's he's not somebody who, you know, was brought in to play. Um, you know, he, he wasn't, he, he was signed for his goal scoring exploits, albeit in the National League North for, for AFC Telford. So um, I would say that when he's playing well at Shrewsbury, he should be a goal scorer. That's, that's my take on it. And, and that's what he's doing at the moment as well. So, um, yeah, credit to them. I mean, for Cheltenham, it's it's just one of those nightmare runs at the moment for them. Um, you know, they had 24 shots in the game against 10 men and they've lost 3-1. Three, three, um, they had a very good run before that. Maybe it's just a regression to kind of towards that lower mid-table where they're going to end up. Argyle-Charlton. This was 
sort of sweet uh, sweet revenge, I'd say, for Argyle because it was Charlton who beat them to end their long, long unbeaten run. Uh, and that then spelled a run of five games without a win, only one point from that, during which point their manager left them for Preston North End, Schumacher, is at the wheel and he picked up his first win here. Of course, this was uh, played in front of the backdrop of, of, of Johnny Jesus Jackson finally being appointed full-time manager at Charlton. So there's a, there was a lot to unpack. That's not, yeah, there was a lot not, to unpack. Not even to mention Kieran Agard lives and was in the starting 11 here and scored a goal, which I, I, I mean, his first in nearly two years and then missed an absolute sitter as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, this is also weirdly the second time Johnny Jackson's played Plymouth Argyle as manager, which because of these weird fixture, um, the weird fixture uh, schedule, um, I don't really get it at all. But anyway, uh, yeah, they were, I mean, Charlton put in a decent performance again. It was almost inevitable. It felt like that as soon as, as, as Johnny Jackson got the Charlton job, he was going to lose a game. Um, but, you know, they were they were OK. But for, for Argyle, for Stephen Schumacher to get his first win, to end this run, you know, they're another one similar to what I was saying about Bournemouth, where I, I don't think the performances have been that poor since they've been um, losing and drawing games. This was going to happen. But so for them to to be a side who um, have been the second best team in the division over the last few weeks is, is a massive moment for them. Uh, and it should give them belief that they'll be able to to continue um to challenge at the top end and you know they're they're striking options if Agard is fit they've got so they started with Agard and, and Hardy um on Saturday they've got they had Jeffcott off the bench they've got Ennis on the bench they've got Garrick as well you know they have an they have six strikers basically who most teams in League One would be pretty happy to to have on their books which gives them amazing options and Schumacher the ability to really chop and change between them so yeah, I mean, I'm still treating Argyle pretty seriously as, as, as top six, top seven contenders. I've just realised I don't have any Argyle players in my League One, in my League One team. That is so another far. thing I was going to mention. Uh, so. Well, let's get there in just a minute, but let's touch on Ipswich 1, Sunderland 1. Uh, an early blitz from Ipswich uh, against Sunderland, kind of reminiscent of Sunderland's fast start at home to Argyle last weekend, um, but couldn't quite execute the final pass or the final finish. Um, most notably from Penny going astray uh, before jo- James Norwood did put them ahead. That was a nice move. Uh, Norwood rising highest, a nice return to action from him uh, with two goals in his last two games. I enjoyed the performance of Sean Aluko here, George. Uh, some really nice... It was just basically just reminding us what Sean Aluko looks like at his best, which, you know, through a bit of bad luck and some poor performances and, dare I say it, a bad, a bad move and a lack of confidence, we haven't seen it for quite some years now, but... You know, he's such an unselfish player, but really skillful, uh, combines so well, quick, slick passing and movement. Um, I think, you know, he, he was one of those one of those 17, 18 signings in the summer. He was never going to be the one that people were most excited about. And someone like Selena, even in flashes this season, has, has provided moments that Aluko could only dream of, really. But in terms of consistent performance and knitting the team and the attack together, I dare say there's an argument to say that Aluko's, uh, you know, should be persevered with in this Ipswich side. Um, Dan Neal's assist was another simply delectable moment, uh, nutmegging Evans before playing a so really, good. really nice, well-timed pass. Pure quality. Into the broadest of heads, Nathan Broadhead, who fired home, who's in some goal-scoring <laughs> form. Uh, and a one or draw, which, um, you know, Ipswich will probably feel like they edged the game and Sunderland will, will rightfully feel like they've done well to, to pick up four points from their two games against Ipswich over the last few weeks. But I think we should talk about the appointment of Kieran McKenna 
He's the new Ipswich Town manager. As we speak, he is in his press conference telling the East Anglian media uh, exactly what he wants to do. They asked him about his playing style and he said, I do have a clear idea in my head, but I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to give too much away to Gillingham. Uh, so Steve Evans Love will it. be furious. <laughs> he did say, I want us to be positive, dominate games and attack in a structured and aggressive way and be aggressive off the ball. So, uh, so far, so standard. Um, uh, how did you take this appointment? I was quite surprised. McKenna comes from Manchester United, incredibly highly thought of as a, as a coach, a youth, a youth team uh, coach and developer, uh, has obviously been part of Manchester United's first team over the last year or two. He's just 35 years old. Yeah, um, I have a few thoughts. I mean, it's it's clearly exciting. You know, he is. This is the. Yeah, I know. This is the. Um, there's a new age of coach. They're getting managers in the EFL, and they are bright young things who've learned their trade at, at, at kind of top clubs. Um, you know, you're looking at James Robries, Rob Edwards, um, but McKenna is almost kind of the elite one. He is the probably the most famous in the last couple of years. Premier League coach without a you know a, a playing background because he retired through injury when he was just I mean he was a very good youth player but but before he kind of was able to stamp his um, his kind of professional game um, but you know and he you know you don't get that job at Manchester United uh, unless you have some serious pedigree as a coach my biggest concern and I know one is League One Ipswich and one is Manchester United. And I thought my my days of talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um, in front of a microphone were over. But but here we go again. Manchester United were the worst prepared and worst coached team in elite football over the last two and a half years, right? And part of that is because they had a manager in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who, at no fault of his own, was totally out of his depth and got he purely got the job on nostalgic vibes. That's why he was Manchester United manager. And... Part of this has to also come down to the coaching staff because, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't alone in um, coaching the team, probably given his um, relative lack of expertise within coaching. You probably would think that he would lean more on the first team coaches for match preparation, for, um, you know, formation drills, for defensive shape than than other managers would. So you have to assume that McKenna has um, in you know, has, has been very much involved in the Manchester United coaching side of things over the last couple of years. Now, I, unlike players, I do not buy into the idea that if, if you are, you know, that every manager has a level, right? So I, I don't buy the idea that you could be an amazing coach, an amazing manager um, at, um, you could be an amazing manager at League One level, but then be out of your depth at Premier League level. Like realistically, if you have a, a, a um, understanding of what is necessary in order to implement your ideas in a successful way to create a decent football team, then that should translate to some extent, no matter what level you're coaching. So it's not necessarily a stylistic issue I've got with with McKenna, where I'm not sure to translate. I, I just I just don't see how somebody who could be such a visionary in terms of coaching could have been involved at a, at a, in a side who was so poorly coached. That's my concern. That isn't to say at all that he isn't going to learn. You know, he's 35 years old. I'm sure he's learnt an unbelievable amount purely from being involved in a football club who were who were so poorly coached. If that makes sense, that will in itself be a massive experience for him. Um, it's like how you just, learned a lot from the early days of this podcast being terrible. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, but 
you know, some of the things you read about McKenna in the press, like being one of the brightest coaches in the in the in, in England and all this stuff, I'd have to take with a massive pinch of salt until I see something on the pitch that that shows it. So I'm excited. I mean, I, I think it's probably more likely to be a successful appointment than an unsuccessful one. But there is just this nagging doubt in my head that thinks, wow, this is this is, you know, we joked about would you want Olegana Solskar to be your manager? Um this is the closest thing we're going to get to it, really. So let's see Let's see how it goes. There was some decent stuff on The Athletic about this today, a couple of snippets. Uh, at United, McKenna was more than capable of delivering strong and hard coaching and development messages. Uh, he drove technological advances, the methods and processes too. That's a lot of good words, that. Uh, many players will Did miss him. It? Many players will miss him, George, and felt he was unfairly criticised as results worsened under Solskjaer. Uh, Martin Pert, who has gone with McKenna to Ipswich as his assistant, is a linguist and was also the direct contact for some of the United players out on loan. He told them what their situation was back at their parent club. Another of his roles was to maximise training for the players who weren't getting game time. So, as coaches, very well thought of. Let's see how it translates. Uh, first time McKenna has taken charge of a professional men's team uh, and there's a lot more than just coaching, um, but no doubt Ipswich fans will look forward to seeing a, a, a well-drilled side. That's what they should be expecting um, because clearly he has interviewed very well. He has shown the, the Ipswich owners and, and remember they didn't hire Paul Cook. This is their first hire as, uh, as football club owners. Uh, it's him that they've gone with and it's going to be very, very interesting to see how he goes. He's got a hell of a squad at his disposal. Not as good as my squad, the League One team of the first half of the hmm. season. Uh, a reminder... We, we, we've already outlined my two biggest gripes, which is annoying. That's fine. Um, remember, maximum two players per team. Um, now, in goal, I've got Jamie Cumming. Um, I've just realised I've got one of the worst teams in the league's goalkeepers in the Championship and in League One. Uh, the Gillingham keeper on loan from Chelsea. Uh, Sorts by save percentage. Uh, I mean, I think he is top of that, but it, it's uh, you can go even deeper. All the underlyings point to coming, the eye test as well. I thought he was excellent at Stevenage last season. I think he's been absolutely excellent at Gillingham. I think he'll be absolutely excellent on loan in the Championship next season. And providing he keeps playing first-team football and doesn't get stuck in the system at Chelsea, I think he's absolutely the next Butland, Hart, Pickford, these guys that we see playing the EFL in their early 20s that play for England one day. And we say, yeah, we saw them play when they were young. Uh, so coming is the one for me uh, in League One. Bazunu, of course, catches the eye with, with a lot of his saves as well. But I think coming's the one. Uh, fullback, not an, not an area of strength, I don't think, in League One. Um, I've, I've got Max Power at right back, full in the knowledge that he's now moved back to midfield in the last few games. And so he probably won't be eligible to be right back in the team of the season at the end of the season. But I think from what we've seen so far, he's been so good at right back, so good on the ball, uh, one of Wigan's most creative players, even from that position, uh, and solid defensively as well. So uh, he's my right back here. Uh, left back, tough one for me. Do you give it to Danny Andrew just because he scores a free kick every four games? Do you give it to Joe Jacobson because he, he his set pieces are incredible? You know, he's not the strongest one-on-one -on -one defender, but I think he understands his game really well and, and he, he very rarely gets isolated or caught out. Steve Seddon comes up pretty well, by the way, if you look at various metrics on uh, on Wisecamp. Too right. No Oxford players in there. Well, shall I go for Classic. Seddon? I've, I, I'll go with Danny Andrew, <laughs> but I'm not happy about it. Um, I'm not sure it's a strong... Someone um, on, on Oxford Bias, someone tweeted the reply to the Quest tweet with me added in it. 
yeah. saying, any chance to talk about Oxford? You never normally do. And I was like, well, A, we did. Yeah. B, we lost. Yeah. And C, I'm an Oxford fan, mm. so I always talk about us. Yeah, true. Um, Centre-backs. I think there's quite a lot of strong defenders in League One, so this was difficult for for the opposite reason. Uh, I think there's just loads of good options. You've got the kind of head it and kick it types, uh, Raggett, Tafazoli, Dunkley, Scar, really strong uh, defenders at the defensive side of the game. I think I want someone with a bit of culture as well. So I'm going for Jack Watmore of Wigan. Uh, they've got a really good defensive record and I think he's been excellent and, and his passing numbers are good. Uh, and I'm going to go with Edmondson of Ipswich, George. I think that's different to what I sent you. Edmondson is the other centre-back with Watmore. Yeah, fair. Uh, I like what I've seen from Famewo recently with Charlton, but that's really just been the last month or so. So I'm keeping a close eye on him. Uh, in midfield, and this is a 4-2-3-1, uh, my midfield two... The long list had Carl, uh, Carl Winchester and Dan Neal on it of Sunderland. Neal, obviously, with so many assists this season, which is very eye-catching. Also had Panuche Camaro on the long list, Matt O'Reilly on the long list. But I've gone with Barlasser and Barry Bannon of Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I, I think I was I was expecting Bannon to be very good at this level, and he has been very good at this level. And it's like you kind of came into it with high expectations. So it's I'm not surprised by how well he's playing, but... He is still excellent at this level. Um, and Barlasser is, is absolutely brilliant for the league's best side, as we saw on the weekend. Um, the three behind the striker, I've got Scott Twine in the 10 uh, for, for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, his numbers are, are sensational. Uh, I've got Dapo Afalion, left wing. I think this, this is one that might not age that well because he's not been great the last few weeks alongside Bolton's general performances. But I think what he did in the first two months of the season still holds a lot of sway for me as just a one-man attack at times. He's, I think he's the most fouled player in the league. He's taken the most shots in the league, just an attacking force. Um, and right wing between Callum Lang and Marcus Harness. Uh, I've gone with... Who have I gone with? I sent you my team. I think Harness. I've, I've gone with Harness. Um, nothing between those two for me, really. Uh, and big Michael Smith up front, not Cole Stockton. Uh, Michael Smith has 12 goals and six assists, crucially, and does so much more, uh, I believe, in general play than uh, Stockton, albeit Stockton has scored some of the best goals I've seen this season. Uh, I'm I'm sticking with my guns, and I think Michael Smith has been the best striker all round in the league this season. Well, what are your thoughts? So I think James McLean should be in it, and I know that you can only have two per, per player, but I think Max Power... I hadn't worked out who would come in for Max Power, but for the reasons you mentioned, I think you could probably find a better right back okay. um, somewhere. You, McLean left wing over <clears throat> Affalion. I'm probably <clears throat> yeah, I think I'm probably okay with that. Um, and then I would also just ask where the Argyle players are. Justice for Argyle. Um, again, I would probably. I know he doesn't yeah, who, pay. In who a, do you a, go with? Well, Hardy was one that I thought again recency biased. Like, why? Well, look at your face. Yeah, what do you mean recency bias? Your your bias here is based on like three weeks of the season when it's been three no. months. No, it's basically up until he their, scored all their his goals. Run. He scored all his goals yeah. in like a three week period. He's got he's he's uh, six players have scored more goals than him. Okay, well the the other one I was going to say had a ragged with Scar. Yeah, um, I just I find the back three. It's difficult in the back three, isn't it? Like between between uh, Wilson and Scar and Gillespie and Galloway. Like, how do you divvy that up? How, oh, is Scar, well, is Star, is Scar absolute standout? I mean, he's the strongest defender in terms of, like, dual win percentage, and, and um, but I'm not sure he's particularly good on the ball. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's fair. Again, as I said, I'm, I'm not happy that I don't have a, an Argyle player in there, but my way of doing this was to go position by position and not look at clubs and then work backwards, was just to pick the players in the positions. Um, 
League Two, we had four games over the weekend. We had four home wins, including one in South London, Sutton, beating Harrogate, moving into third place in the League Two table, George. Have mm. we got something quite special brewing here? I think we might do. Um, it's And it's something, again, I mentioned on Quest, is their options. I mean, their attacking options are so good. I mean, we, we might not have known a great deal about Donovan Wilson, Omar Bagheel, um Oluafe and, and Ajiboye, but all four of them, you know, Oluafe coming off the bench here, you know, when they've got, we thought that when he came back from injury, he would be their key attacking man, but they, they're able to rotate him in and out of the sides. Um, they are just incredibly strong and they make it so difficult for the opposition. Um, you know, Harrogate had their chances in the second half to come back into this, but Sutton held firm and it's just another good result against another good team. And the only blip recently has been their 3-2 defeat against Newport where they were playing with 10 men for the for, for an hour. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Sutton in third are completely there by merit and I don't see any reason why, you know, unless there are changes in January or unless they get bought by, you know, they just become one big NFT. Um, I, I don't see any reason why it, it wouldn't continue into in for the rest of the campaign. They are one of the best teams in League Two. They certainly create a lot of chances from a lot of different sources. Uh, all those attacking players that you mentioned, uh, their output from set pieces is very good as well. Uh, for balance, they do not have one of the better defensive records of the top seven. Um, they do seem to have a sort of winning nous, George, that carries on from last season's promotion from the National League. They seem to edge tight games, ones where, yeah, maybe they edge it or maybe it's very well balanced and Sutton tend to come out with three points more often than not. I guess the big question is, is that a characteristic that can sustain? Uh, is that just a, a personality trait of this team which will carry them for another 20, 23 games? Or is luck and variance a, a stronger factor, you know, in which case we might see a run where things don't fall their way so much? Um, it's difficult to say. But, you know, their, I think their XG ratio is not, it's not top three, top three. No. But something has but carried them also... there. And I, and I think there's merit in that. There's also like a, a really... Um, They're very consistent in their performance levels. But, the, but and, and there's also something we spoke about um, with Paul Riley, if you, you know, a while ago on the podcast, is that XG stuff does seem to not track as well in League Two for whatever reason. And also when you look at the, the League Two XG ratio table, it's so much more bunched than other leagues. You know, you look at the championship and the top teams, Fulham, Bournemouth, compared to the bottom teams, Barnsley, it's like 70% plays 30%. You know, these are teams a completely different ends. Whereas in League Two, there's a much there's a much tighter bunch basically between 4th and 17th, 18th, where there's not much to choose between, between them. So then it does become a case of um, the intangibles, I guess. And in Sutton, they seem to be a team who have absolutely no issue seeing out Seeing, seeing out leads, they seem to be a side who have no issues scoring, creating chances against anybody. So, yeah, I mean, I think luck and variance may play a part and they may, they may dip a bit, but I don't see any reason why they would fall away massively and become one of those teams who, who go on a, a long, winless run. I agree. I'm up for the fairy tale. I don't want to, you know, rain on any parades. I, I will mention just one last thing that they, you know, they're in third in the league table. Um, they've got 1.64 PPG. There's three teams below them who have a slightly higher, I mean, it's marginal, but Vale, Tranmere, 1.67, Swindon, 1.65. So, you know, they're at the top of that group in the league table, but that's mostly due to having played a, a game or two more than those teams. So um, it's still a sensational start to the season. And we've already been to Gander Green Lane once, but I quite fancy another trip, I must say. Um, if only so we can have another sensational cup beforehand. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was very good. Yes. Rochdale 
big League Two winners this weekend, a 3-0 shellacking of Newport County. Um, Jake Beasley going again. Jake X Jeasley, as I'm calling him. Yeah. Because uh, before, I mentioned it on the betting show, before that game, uh, last five games in League Two, his XG numbers were off the charts. Uh, and you can see why, because he's getting in really good areas. I also want to pat myself on the back too much, but I think two weeks ago <laughs> I said Rochdale are going to thump someone. And annoyingly, I'm still not correct. I said between now and New Year's Day, inclusive, they're going to score four or more in a game. They didn't but they did win 3-0. And, and George, if you keep playing nice attacking stuff like they do with nice attacking players like Morley and Kelly and all those in front of them, this is going to happen at some point, you know, and, and they're quite fun for the neutral because it doesn't happen all the time and they generally uh, clean sheets are a, a rarity. But um, yeah, very impressive performance from Dale against a good Newport side. Yeah, it was impressive. I mean, I think it's worth, before we, we give Rochdale their due credit, I think Newport were better than, than 3-0. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that Rochdale were worse, but Newport, you know, the game was was poised, you know, well, the home team went ahead after two minutes and I watched most of the game and after that, Newport looked pretty dangerous throughout and, and it was Rochdale who managed, you know, Rochdale nearly went 2-0 up after five minutes, but a goal was ruled out. Uh, but Newport certainly looked like they were going to score you know, and they probably deserved to score on the balance of play. Um and you know the third the third goal game when came when Newport had thrown every man except for the keeper forward. And what I loved, I mean, Beasley's first goal was was, was a nice finish. The the penalty was um, was a penalty uh, taken pretty well. And then what I loved was his assist for the Liam Kelly goal, where he showed like a bit of a turn of pace for a, for a, for a big man up top. You know, he 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 burnt down the left hand side. Um, I think it may have been Dimitri. I'm not sure. Um, so I'm not the fastest himself, but certainly showed a couple of gears. And then the presence of mind as well, just to roll it to Kelly rather than trying to go for his hat trick, which in itself is a very good trait to have too. You know, Beasley's now scored four in his last two. Um, a player whose you know history is a little bit confusing where I, I try to kind of find out more about it. I'd like to hear more where he was bought from Solihull Moors for a fee and given a three-year deal, having scored no goals in nine games for Solihull, which is... Um, quite quite odd, but you know they obviously saw something in him, and it's and it's paying dividends now because he looks like every bit the the kind of target man slash goal scorer that you want to be leading the line. So, and Robbie Stockdale's Rochdale are certainly fun to watch. I think they'd want their their good results to come more consistently. Um, but yeah, a good win against the Newport side, who themselves are pretty good. It's funny that Robbie Stockdale, if you wrote that out, so I'm just talking out loud here. If you wrote that out and then deleted the B-B-I-E and the S-T-O-C-K, you get the word Rochdale. He's a perfect manager for <laughs> Yeah. No, it's a complete lie. doesn't work at all. Oh, no. Rockdale. <laughs> anyway, I think I'm going to leave that one in, just so everyone knows that uh, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> Newport, no, Rochdale were the first team in... A, se- a sequence of nine Newport opposition that didn't stop Dom Telford scoring. So well done, Rochdale, for that as well. Very impressive stuff. I notice on the... Uh, here's how finishing works. Uh, in the League Two season metrics on the Opta Analyst site, Jake Beasley, XG per 90, 0.57. Dominic Telford, XG, point, point, XG per 90, 0.56. Goals per 90, 1.13 Telford, 0.44 Beasley. Almost three times as many goals per 90 mm. from the same quality chances. Uh, we had Tranmere 1, Orient 0, and Salford 1, Stevenage 0. George, which was the best one here? Four in a row uh, for Tranmere. 
Yeah, I think Tranmere probably is the the story here. Four wins in a row. I definitely didn't see this coming. I was pretty concerned about them, but they've certainly hit their hit their straps at the right time. Um, and for uh, yeah, for Orient, it's you know I, I probably when we saw them beating Swindon four one just a week or so ago, I didn't anticipate that they were going to go through a, a difficult patch. Though we should say that um, COVID has played its part here. Loads of players missing for this one. A lovely strike from Jay Spearing to, to get the goal as well, showing a bit of quality. Uh, and for Mickey Mellon, you know, this has been been a big one. They've won, you know, four consecutive games. They've won three of them 1-0, which, you know, might not be um, showing the greatest amount of um, kind of dominance over their opposition, but it's as good as they can do. And, and Tramia fans, certainly I know, are now thinking that after a, a sticky start to the campaign, there's no reason why they can't be one of the sides who can... Um, challenge for the other two automatic spots you know, they're up in fifth now I mean how's that happened well sensationally and this was pointed out by Tim Keach who is part of the Market Insights gang they've got 35 points and they've only scored 18 goals having played 21 games so I mean not just below scoring a goal a game but like a couple of ticks below uh, so <laughs> their their points per goal is 1.94 which if anyone can find an example of a team having a better points per goal scored than Tramia Rovers 21-22 season where they're currently on 1.94 points per goal scored. Let me know. I'm all ears. Um, but pretty remarkable. Orient can just a bit of a block away from home, I think. I, I still don't think their performances in general away from home are terrible. Nothing in the numbers to suggest that they are, but seven draws in 11. Um, this one was pretty classic Orient away game fair uh, and they just fell on the wrong side of it thanks to a screamer from Spearing. And Salford beat Stevenage 1-0. Beautiful set piece from Ash Hunter onto the head of Jordan Turnbull uh, to get Salford the win here. Um, I've spoken about Salford a few times after wins on the Monday pod, and I'll say the same thing that I always say, which is just win again. Can you win again? Because they haven't won back-to-back yet this season, and I'm, I'm bored of seeing them win and going like, yeah, this all makes sense. I think they'll go on a run now, but I don't think they will. Uh, because they they seem to have a bit of a mental block on it. Um, my main takeaway from this game, George, is that Stevenage. Be careful what I say here because it's early days. That they 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 might have got worse. They certainly haven't got better. Um, they're they're in really poor form. Um, they have lost their last two to nil to Salford and to Carlisle. Not mustering a huge amount going forward and giving up plenty of chances to their opposition. They drew one all at home to Scunny, and Scunny just edged the XG there per Y scout. I'm looking at now. Uh, they lost in the FA Cup to Yeovil one nil. Uh, they lost on penalties to Sutton in the Papa John's. And they drew two all with Stevenage before then and gave up the highest expected goals against number in English football this season against Dale in that two all draw. So that's the last six games for them. And uh, I'm pretty concerned, I must say, about Stevenage. Um, my League Two team of the first half of the season. What a lovely way to finish. Uh, remember, mm. maximum two players per team. And <laughs> something of a trend I've noticed about me and goalkeepers, George. I basically give any goalkeeper a multiplier based on them being really busy and being good. Good and busy is what I'm looking for because Shamal George is at the top here. I mean, I'm not going to lie. A lot of my goalkeeper picks are just based on going on Opta Analyst, looking at, at, uh, looking at the underlying data, seeing how, how seeing goalkeepers goal prevention rate, basically Shamal George playing for one of the worst teams in the division, uh, has done pretty well, uh, better than any regular goalkeeper on that front. I think he's injured at the moment. I'm not sure how long for, so we wish him well. He's in my team of the season so far. My back four 
is Kane Wilson of Forest Green. I've been banging the Kane Wilson is better and more important than Nicky Cadden drum for a while. I'm going to keep banging it because um, that's my thing. Centre-backs, John Guthrie of of Northampton Town, Cobblers, uh, who has a lot of goals but is also just so strong at the back. Um, I think him and Horsfall are a, a very good duo, but I spoke to friend of the pod Butch on the NTT uh, squad. I asked him if I, if I could take away one of those players... Um, for the rest of the season, who would you want me to leave you with? And he went with Guthrie. So he's in there. And Peter Clark of Tranmere, they've obviously got an incredible defensive record. It's not necessarily matched up by the underlying numbers, as you've pointed out a few times. I think Peter Clark's last ditch defending is a, is a reason for that. Um, so many blocks, so many key headers, uh, and a nice passing range as well for the 39-year-old. Uh, his passing numbers are very good. A nod to two championship loanies here. Connor Taylor at Bristol Rovers on loan from Stoke and Alex Mitchell on loan at Leighton Orient from... Millwall, they're both doing really well this season, haven't quite made it in. My left back is McLaughlin of Mansfield Town. I think he's just a perfect fullback for League Two level. Good going forward, solid enough defensively, takes a mean set piece, perfect. My midfield is a diamond midfield because I'm not that keen on basically any wingers in League Two apart from Adjaboy of Sutton, uh, who misses out because of my f- diamond formation. At the base of it is Swindon's Louis Reed, who is an absolute class act. I've got Tom Conlon. Another class actor, Port Vale, in midfield. Um, those two are going to dictate. I've got the legs and dribbling ability and goal threat of Patterson, of Harrogate, who basically does nothing apart from get chances, get shots off, create chances, um, and run around a lot. And then in the number t- the number 10 was probably my most difficult decision because I wanted to get Newport's Ollie Cooper here. Bit of a statty one. He's not racking up a load of goals and assists, but... If you look at his underlying numbers for both uh, creativity mixed with a bit of goal threat, mixed with a lot of def- of defensive work, a lot of pressing, particularly in tackling, I think he stands out. But I couldn't ignore Matt Jay because I just think he's a quality player, um, clearly a big goal threat and a creator as well for Exeter this season. And at the top of the pitch, I mean, this is a stacked position, right? Uh, I've gone with Jamil Matt over Matty Stevens because although Stevens... Uh, goal threat is larger than Matt's. Um, they're on the same amount of goals, but we spoke about that on the betting show the other day. I think Matt brings more overall, so he's so important to them outside of just the the uh, the moment of shooting and scoring. And up front, I've gone with Dom Telford because he's one player of the month two two months in a row. He's got 1.13 non-penalty goals per 90, and even though I expect that to cool down, and I'd be surprised if he finishes the season in my team of the season, I think... You can only judge people on what they've actually done, not on their underlying numbers uh, when it comes to being in front of goal. And Telford is, is doing things that only Mitro is doing, really. Um, I feel a bit bad for Matty Stevens, for Harry Smith and Drinnen, I suppose. They've all been really good as well. But that's my League Two team. Shamal George in goal, Kane Wilson, John Guthrie, Peter Clark, and Stephen McLaughlin. Diamond in midfield, Louis Reed, Tom Conlon, Alex Patterson and Matt Jay with Jamil Matt and Dom Telford up top. Roast me. I've only got one, and, and I'm not that you know. I, I can tell that you're. Um, you appreciate you that I've spent a number much. of hours on this. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't want nice to touch. upset you. I can tell on the League One one you weren't too happy. But what I would say, and because I, I agree with everything you're saying here, mate, I'm going to try a different tact. But what I think is, that as much as I love, and you know, I loved Mill Matt. You know that I love him. I just feel, and I know that we're coming at this from different ways, but I just feel that maybe we could put in one of the other many strikers in League Two, who I think maybe 
the goals and their performances are more to do with them rather than the team around them. So the aforementioned Jake Beasley, possibly, probably more likely Harry Smith, I would say, would be the one that I would maybe go for. And then we can get Nicky Cadden in on the left-hand side. Because I think Cadden, if I was to do, I mean, I love Kane Wilson very much, but if I was to do the League Two Player of the Season awards right now, I think Cadden might possibly even win it. So for him to not be in that team, just, yeah, doesn't quite sit well with me. So I would have Cadden and Wilson as the two wing-backs and then bring in a bit of a um, a self-made superstar, maybe in Harry Smith, to be up front alongside Telford. Yeah, I just think that, that Cadden hat-trick against Crawley just really massively like boosts his his numbers uh, this season in a way that might not be. But he's just so good, though. Yeah, but I think Wilson's better, as I've said a, a number of times. Uh, for I'm not. I'm not saying get rid of Wilson. Don't no, get me wrong. I'm no. by no means saying that at all. It's a stance, mate. Just the cab, man. It's a stance. It's a stance. Um, and I'm sticking with it. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, reduced docket, but still got almost 90 minutes out of us uh, always a pleasure the only thing i want for christmas is to continue talking about elfl football with my friend george ellick on this podcast for as long as we both can uh thank you to our sponsors betfair who allow us to do it um by sponsoring both this and the betting show very very grateful for their support looking forward to fulham against blades tonight under the lights at Craven Cottage, live on Sky. Uh, let's hope for an entertaining game. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please get in touch and tell me that I'm a fraud. I plead guilty to five counts of fraudulence across those three uh, teams of the half season. Let me know what you think. Thanks, George. Thanks for listening, guys. Go well. We'll speak again on Thursday, will we? We'll speak again with the betting show ahead of Boxing Day. At when, some point. When that will be. I don't know, probably 2pm on Boxing Day. Um, Stay tuned for that, guys. Thanks for listening.